from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. I'm Robert Ross, and this is Cars That Matter. I have a real fun guest this afternoon, Alana Shear. Welcome, Alana. Hi, I'm very excited to be introduced as fun. Well, you are fun. We've known each other for a long time as uh, professional colleagues, if you will, the extent to which I'm professional. You are. You're a real journalist, and you've been writing for a number of outlets, both in print and online for some time. I've followed your work. You're kind of all over the place, which is a good thing for a journalist because your voice gets to uh, resonate among a lot of readers and an audience of quite some breadth and scope. But we're here today, of course, to talk about cars that matter. And I know there are some cars that matter quite a bit to you. But before we talk about those, let's get to know you a little bit better. You've got a a real great writing style. I've been recently following your stuff in the sports car market, and I enjoy that quite a bit. How did you get into writing? It's funny because... I'm going to go slightly off topic, and I promise I'll come back to the question. I went to school for art, for fine art, for photography and painting. And when I was in college, a very good friend of mine, Andrew, said, I don't know why you're wasting your time painting. You should really be a writer. That's what you are. And I was so mad at him because I loved painting, and I still paint. And I was like, I never said I wanted to be a writer. Where did you even get this? And then all of a sudden, I kind of started writing again, and I was like, oh, man, he was right. I think I thought I didn't want to be a writer because it didn't seem as hard to me as painting did or photography. And then once I got back into it, I realized I can really make this a challenge and I can keep getting better at it. So That's fantastic. And how did the writing eventually land you into the car arena? I was always fighting this destiny of becoming a writer. So I was working first as a mechanics assistant, and then I was working Ah. in a motorcycle shop, and then I was making... Boy, well, that's not unusual, is it? Oh, everyone's done it. Then I was making carbon fiber for racing bikes. And really, I was better at organizing other techs than I was at being a tech. I was better at writing the instructions. I was better at having the meetings with the race teams and figuring out what we needed to do next or who we needed to talk to next. So I got into automotive PR and I worked for an agency, Dan Kahn. He, he runs Kahn Media. It's a big place now. Sure, we know Dan. I was his first employee. It was just okay. me and him. Wow. <laughs> And I learned so much. I mean, I learned a lot of technical stuff because I already liked cars, I mean, and bikes, but I didn't know a whole lot outside of the car that I had, which was a Dodge. I had a Dodge Challenger. And so I knew a lot about Mopar muscle cars, but not the other ones. So I started learning more about other muscle cars, and then I started learning about vintage Porsches and, and other cars because the agency covered so many different kinds of cars and trucks. And I was working with all these different writers, including yourself, you know, sending press releases. And I think that's where we did meet. You know, I'm sure it is. And seeing people at shows. And eventually I found out that there was an opening at Hot Rod Magazine for a writer. Um, well, there's a lofty title that goes back uh, decades. I mean, if you're going to... as far back as I go. <laughs> I think it's even further, isn't it? I, well, actually, it is, thankfully. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go for something, just go straight to the top. But I'd already been writing stories because a lot of what happens in PR is you sort of write things for other people to use. So I was familiar with the idea of writing features and writing about cars. And I asked David Freiberger, who was the editor there, would it be weird if I applied for this job? And he was like, no, that would be great. You should do it. And I did. And he gave me the job. 
I, well, that's, it that's still a, kind of blows my mind. That's that's a great way to jump in, and especially uh, into a part of the automotive arena that is pretty esoteric and obviously has a very rich history and one that resonates a lot, I think, with people in Southern California and in certain kind of car cultures on the East Coast as well. Alana, I think you're a little bit modest. You were uh, alluding to some early days where you were working in a car shop and bike shop. Tell us a little more about that. When I worked in the car shop, I had a very specific job, and it was just taking things apart. Oh, that's um, the most fun. You don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> yeah, it's the easiest part of mechanical work. But um, you do have to be careful. You have to be careful, and also you have to be strong, which honestly I'm not anymore. And recently I was like trying to do, I was trying to put a spark plug wire back on number seven on the V8 in well, the Dodge Polara. That's, 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 that's a tough one. And long arm of the law to do that. I just kept having to get a like a taller and taller step stool because like I couldn't get the leverage to put it on. I was like, yeah. I'm going to have to start working out just so I can work on the car. That's funny. So tell us about this motorcycle shop. Oh, well, so it was sport bikes. So oh, okay. Hondas and Yamahas and Ducatis. Oh, um, beautiful, yeah. beautiful Ducatis. Yes, beautiful, beautiful Ducatis. Do you really want to go there? We can talk about those all day long. <laughs> I started working at Graves Motorsports, which was a Yamaha support team, AMA Yamaha support team. And then they also ran a like a supermoto team. And then when I left there, I worked for a man named Paul Taylor who did carbon fiber. And that was when I really got to spend a lot of time at the races and, you know, work with the Ducatis. And, and unfortunately, they go through a lot of carbon fiber. <laughs> they do. Yeah. I mean, if you have a lot of carbon fiber on a bike, yeah. You're probably going to have to replace it at one time or another. They do like to fall down. Yeah. It was great. I mean, I got to go to a lot of the races and some of the off-road racing as well. We worked a lot with Honda. It was just cool to work with race engineers, and I learned so much about racing that was applicable when I started writing about cars as well. That's fantastic. What about, do you ride bikes as well? I have a mini bike. Oh, yeah. I have a Honda 90. Oh, that's incredible. I keep talking about getting my license. I'd like to. I recently took a Honda dirt bike class, which was so fun. That is a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, a whole lot safer than <laughs> negotiate our streets in Los Angeles. Yeah, that was my main thing is it, it yeah. looks like so much fun, but also I don't know anyone who hasn't gone down. Yeah, that's true. It's really not a matter of if, but when. I hate yeah. to say it. I mean, luckily, there's so much safety gear now that people can survive things that they they would have been very hurt by uh, previously. But you yeah. have to wear it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And when it's 100 degrees out, it's not a very enticing proposition to uh, say, I'm going to put on 60 pounds of leather and reinforcement. Well, I always feel like a leather jacket is more comfortable than a body cast for three months. So very good point. I'm all for it. And yeah, so my one of my 2020 to-do list things is to get my license. Oh, good for you. Well, talk about where you think the market's going or interests are going now with the phenomenon of resto mods. That is a good thing to talk about because I was just thinking about it. You know, recently a collector in Florida sold a whole bunch of original race cars, all the Dick Landy pro stock cars. And I should say he put them up for auction, but they a lot of them didn't reach a, a number that he was happy with and he didn't sell them all. And I was like, huh. It's hard to tell sometimes, does that mean that people aren't interested in this era anymore? Or is it just that there are so many auctions going on that people are looking in all these different places and you really need, especially if it's a race car where you're not going to be able to drive it every day. That's right. You need two people who want it, that's right? That's right. And so then you need, if you have two people who want it, you need only one car. If you have multiple cars, which they did at this auction, then you've got 
You know, rare, everyone can bid on the one they want and they can all a, get them. That's a rare set of buyers. And, and I think you, you probably hit on it. People want cars that they can drive. And, of course, these resto mods, that is old cars that are equipped with modern underpinnings, are cars that you can drive. So for a long time, you kind of had to do that yourself, right? I mean, that's what hot rod, popular hot rodding were, exactly. were all about. Was, exactly. No two alike. Yeah. And, you know, the definition of a resto mod can be mild or, or very extreme. But a lot of times it involves either putting a modern engine into a car, like, for example, putting a 5.0 Mustang engine into an older Ford or putting a modern Hemi into a Chrysler or putting an LS engine from Chevy into anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you don't have to. I mean, it can also be, say, putting fuel injection on an old engine or Mm -hmm. just upgrading suspension, which is what I did on my Challenger. Mm -hmm. And Um, of course, brakes, because people want to want to stop. Brakes, wheels, tires. Yeah, brakes, wheels, tires. And it can also be adding in technology that people like, you know, for infotainment. For example, you can put in hideaway screens so that you have navigation. You can put in Bluetooth, all of that stuff. So you can do them in, in a lot of different ways, in ways where they look stock, but drive totally differently. That's right. You know, or all stuff where you've got big wheels and and low pro tires and and that's a look all its own. And it's a very polarizing thing. I mean, purists will bristle and sometimes I'm one of those. Bristle like a porcupine when I see (laughs) something with, you know, big Slayer wheels, 22-inch wheels and a look that would not have been familiar to the original designer of the car. But, you know, truth be told, they're a popular way to go and obviously afford a great deal of driving pleasure when it comes to actually taking them out on the road and using them. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that anybody who's really against it ought to drive one. And then even if you don't want to do it to your own car, you'll understand why other people wanted to do it to theirs. I think you said it when we first started, you know, they're not, there aren't enough cars to tell anybody that their car doesn't count. And That's there aren't right. enough people who love cars to tell anyone that the way that they love cars doesn't count. So I'm all for it. Whatever you want to do, and especially if it makes you actually drive the car, just do it. That's fine. If someone down the road doesn't like it, they can undo it. That's probably the best advice and the best way to look at anything that, especially in a hobby that is challenged with getting new and fresh enthusiasts into the ring. And that's something we can talk about when we come back after our break. Hi, my name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by Proudsource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles, but the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. Proudsource Water believes in the ripple effect, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part, and I do mine, and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudsourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink Proudsource Water. On Medicine, We're Still Practicing, join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Well, I'm back with Alana Shear on Cars That Matter. We're talking about some of her favorites and, frankly, some of mine, too, muscle cars from the 60s and early 70s. And, Alana, I know you've got a couple of interesting cars. You alluded to them. I know you've got a Fury 3 and Charger, as you said. Yeah, we've got, we have a dozen cars now, I think. I know, it's terrible. So I'm, I'm married, and my husband likes cars, too. We met through cars. People are always like, oh, I, I really wish my partner was into cars. And I have to just warn you. You don't have anyone there who's like, no, don't buy that. You know, he, he comes home, and he's like, oh, you know, I found a 78 Dodge Dually. 
all right, let's get it, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, we're both each other's devils. So, you know, so most of what we have are Chrysler products. We've got two big ramp trucks, like the kind that they used it for hauling race cars in 1970, and a dump truck, which, honestly, we just keep in the backyard and let my niece and nephew play on. You know, what could be more fun than a dump truck, except maybe a half-track or a, or a World War II Army ambulance or something like that? That's fantastic. Yeah, I recommend it instead of a swing set. Keeps everybody happy. But it isn't all Chryslers. We've got a couple of others. We have a Ford Wrecker, a 65 Ford Wrecker, like a tow truck. Looks like Tomator from the movie Cars. It's really, really cute. We like taking it to, like, our in-laws for Christmas and stuff and just parking it outside their house. (laughs) But nobody minds. Everybody thinks it's cool because it looks like a cartoon. And I have a Myers-Manx project. Oh, good heavens. Now, that's uh, those have actually come back into the collector's orbit a bit. I know I've talked to a few fellows that have expressed some interest in those. Yeah, and then, again, talking about opportunities to make things your own and then use them. There are just so many ways to take a a dune buggy. You know, it doesn't have to be a dune buggy. You could make a good streetcar. They handle very well if you put real wheels and tires on them. So you could make an autocross Manx. You could, you know, you could make a just a cruise around town Manx. Or you could really go off-roading with them. You know, people enter them in the the vintage off-road races down in Mexico and in the Mexican 1000, the Nora race. What do you have powering yours? So I'm building it with my friend Perry, and who's a collector. So Perry and I are building this together, and we keep going back and forth about engine. For a while, we were like, oh, let's make a Cobra Manx. Let's use like a Shelby steering wheel and, you know, make it kind of racy. And then the last time that I talked to him, he was like, how would you feel about doing an EV Manx? And I was like, oh, that would actually be a really good matchup. There's like plenty of room for a battery, and it'd be fun to have a dune buggy that was all quiet. I mean, that that's the whole point of it, right, is to just say, which direction do I want to go in? And I could also change my mind and go a different direction. That sort of brings us into the next topic, really, and in, in a more serious topic in many ways. How do we keep this flame alive? Obviously, we know what's good for us, and we think that cars that matter are something that should be important and go well on and through the 21st century and beyond because they're more than just cars. Let's talk about car shows. Which are your favorite car shows? My favorite car shows are car shows where there's an activity other than just sitting next to your parked car. So I'm guessing then that your least favorite would be uh, traditional venues like <clears throat> Pebble Beach or, uh, <laughs> or any, uh, anything that falls along that line where people kind of park them and start them only for the judges. Well, Pebble is an animal all of its own, and there's so much going on there that it's a pretty exciting place to be, and yes, you can always I, go to the racetrack there. Absolutely. So certainly, I, won't, certainly won't take anything away from Monterey Car Week. Yeah, so I would say Monterey Car Week is pretty good as far as, you know, car shows go. And it's not that I don't think that there's a place for, you know, morning cars and coffee meets or, or for, like, Days in the Park, you know, Woodley Park here in Los Angeles. That's a fun show, the Italian-French car show. I love that one. They do a Mopar one. They do a Ford one. You know, so it it is nice to have a place to just get together and see people you know in the hobby and maybe look at cars that are similar to yours. But the ones that I really like have been shows like Roadkill, which is an offshoot of Hot Rod Magazine, does a show in Detroit in the summer where they shut down Woodward, which is where the original engineers used to drag race back in the 50s and 60s, 70s. And they shut it down and they do a legal drag racing show, an event. And they also, it's right outside of M1, so they also have drift rides inside the venue. Dodge does a drift ride. 
And it's just, it's so fun because there's stuff happening all over the place. So there are cars parked and you can look at them, but then you can also see those cars racing each other a few minutes later when they drive down the, the drag strip. And to me, a car that is parked and not moving and that you never see moving, you don't really understand. Mm-hmm. That's right. Like, I feel like I didn't really understand the appeal of vintage Lamborghinis until I rode in one and I heard what it sounds like That's when you're right. in one. Well, now you're now you're talking <laughs> my language. Yes, there's nothing quite sounds like a V12 from that era. And yeah. a Lamborghini sounds different than a Ferrari, and that makes it even more interesting. Yeah, and so, you know, when I only saw them at auctions or parked in museums, I thought they were pretty, but I did not get it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then once I was in one, I was like, oh... Yeah, there's nothing else like this. I've never experienced this before. I'll bet that was a Mira. It wasn't a Mira. It was an Espada. Oh, an Espada. Well, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, Yeah, that beautiful, long, low, flat cockroach of a thing. It's (laughs) one of the most beautiful Gandini designs ever. I love those cars. Um, I still haven't been in a Mira, so if somebody's listening and would like to give me a ride in a Mira, I am available. Just contact (laughs) Robert. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, that's a great car to drive, too. I mean, and I think... Earlier, you were talking a little bit about, well, how do we get more people to do this? How do we get people to love cars the way that we do? And I think that there are a lot of different approaches to it. And people are making those approaches. I mean, one of them is to be less snobby for all of us, you know, to release the desire that we have to tell people that the way that they're doing car stuff is not cool. Back to that more inclusive kind of thing. We, yeah. we, we can't afford to alienate all the enthusiasts because there aren't that many of us. Yeah. And so I think that trying to make things not so separate. And, you know, there used to be so many different ways to be into cars that you could be like, well, I'm a lowrider guy and it's no connection to hot rodding. But really, if you look at lowrider and hot rodding history, they joined. They do coincide. It's all about customization and expressing yourself. And they also started in some of the same places, you know, I mean, like the artists who did, you know, who kind of developed into the lowrider style of painting, they were doing custom hot rods before that. And if you start looking at cars from the late 40s and the 50s and when they first started doing these kind of decorative paint jobs, you will recognize the design elements that became lowrider paint jobs. Absolutely. You're right. Some of the best pinstripers, for instance, would work from, you know, one vernacular to the other. Yeah. And so things like that where to say like there's not a a wall between these things and there isn't a wall between American cars and European cars, you know, outlaw Porsche guys, for example, you know, doing these kind of funky off-roady Porsches. And there's also people doing that with American muscle cars. And then obviously trucks are right in the middle of all that. That's right. You're you're using that technology for both of those cars to learn how to, to deal with having big wheels and tires and knobbies and all of that. But also... And this is a hard one for a lot of people. One thing that I've noticed in sort of reading and reviewing and being in the community is that I think that there's a real interest in climate, you know, climate change and ecological concerns in younger people for good reason, because they're going to have to be around with whatever mess that is left. That's right. And in the car community, especially in the performance car community, kind of across the board, there's a real reluctance to have that conversation Because it's not a super easy one. That's a good point. I mean, you're burning dead dinosaurs to the tune of, you know, five, six miles a gallon in some of these super high performance cars from the era. 
Yeah. And I mean, I would say as somebody who drives these cars that there are solutions to it. One is, first of all, most people who have old cars don't drive them as much. That's as, right. You know, that they're, they're really not the problem. But also, like, I bought the Opal and I get 30 miles per gallon in the Opal. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. It's, and, it's better than the new Mercedes that I've got parked downstairs right now. That's so funny. <laughs> so there are classic cars that get great mileage. So you, if you want to drive a classic car daily, you could look into that. To not deny and to not demonize people who care about the world and wanting to save rainforests and stuff. Like, it doesn't have to be either or. You can care about both things. And I think that that's going to be really important moving forward because you don't want to make people choose. Like, you don't want to make people say, I can only love cars or I can only care about the earth. That's a, that's a really valid observation. You know, Elena, you, you bring up some real good points. Obviously, it's a matter of the mindset and it's a matter of how we want to look at this hobby going into the future. You're right. Certainly, these high fuel burning uh, supercars and hot rods from the past are not being driven that much. But the idea of being conscious of future needs is certainly something that's going to be top of mind for younger enthusiasts as they come into the hobby. Yeah, and I think that there are ways to to address that or to at least allow that to be a part of the conversation without it being an enemy situation. <laughs> that's right. That's absolutely right. Because certainly there are uh, there are some people that have no understanding of why we would ever be interested in these things. Yeah, and if we can make it something that people are okay and comfortable talking about without, you know, name-calling or deciding that one side is, you know, old dinosaurs and the other side is that's, is mindless tree-huggers. That's right. Then we'll have a better voice to make sure that the rules and the laws that are made are not going to just punish us who collect old cars and do nothing to solve a problem, right? You know, like you could ban every car from pre-1973 right now and it would, you wouldn't... It would, it would not make a dent in the environmental no. concerns mm-hmm. that we have. You're right. You're it, absolutely right. I mean, it would make a dent in the, uh, you know, environmental concerns on my driveway where I, I <laughs> currently have an oil leak. But, uh... Well, I, I think to that extent, we're probably safe. You know, you talk about some people and programs that are trying to engage younger enthusiasts. I know Haggerty is folks who, who do the insurance. There's not a plug for them, but I know for a fact that they're trying to uh, have some substantial outreach to uh, younger folks by way of their teach a kid to drive days and those kinds of things that hopefully get young folks drawn into the hobby and into the mindset by doing and not by sitting behind a computer game and playing a, you know, playing a video game about racing a car, but actually by getting out there and driving one. Yeah. I mean, I think letting people drive, whether that's a young person in your life or a spouse or a friend, you know, I mean, I'm always amazed how many times I'll meet somebody whose spouse has never driven their car. Like, what? Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> odd, isn't it? It's that, that's, that's a very, very, very strange thing. I mean, I think that people get really intimidated. So I feel like it's our job as people who have cars to be a little less precious about them and to be a little more generous with them. Oh, boy, guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I think I probably need, I need some couch time. <laughs> well, I mean, just find a big parking lot where there's nothing to hit and just let someone take one <laughs> circle in the car, that, like it just in first gear. They don't need to go fast really unlikely that they'll break your car in one circle. And if they did, they're just finding a problem that was going to break on you anyway. Yeah, that's very interesting. See, you're always thinking positive. (laughs) That's what I like. I need to be around a little more of that kind of attitude. In fairness, your cars are worth a lot more than mine, so I won't deny that. (laughs) No, it's, you know what, but they're just cars. And I guess we always have to remind ourselves they're just cars. 
You mentioned a Mercedes down in the lot. Let's talk about new cars. What have you been driving recently or driven in the not-too-distant past that you find interesting? Actually, I just drove a really fun car. What's that? I just drove the Aston Martin Vantage AMR Manual, and I really liked it. Well, I'm finding a manual anything these days is quite a rarity, apart from Porsche and BMW and, well, maybe Aston Martin. I can't think of too many people that make them. Yeah, I mean, the new Corvette doesn't even come with a manual. So, and I am not one of those people who thinks that all cars have to be manual or that driving a manual makes you a morally better person. You <laughs> well, know. even if it does. <laughs> even if it does. No, I, I come from drag racing. Automatics are a lot easier in drag racing. Of course. There are some... Nowadays, automatics are amazing performance-wise, but what a manual car does is that even if it's a new car, it gives you some of what's fun about driving an old car. And weirdly, what's fun about driving an old car is the possibility of screwing up. That's a very good point. And it really makes you engage with the car and the whole act of driving. I think without that manual decision that you have to make every time you shift up or shift down, you disengage a little bit from the whole driving equation. Yeah, well, and when you drive a manual and there's a lot of chances to do things and get them right or get them wrong. So right. de- depending on how much challenge you want to give yourself, you know, I mean, I drive the Opal's a manual and I drive it as a daily. So, you know, most of the time I'm just if I'm stuck in traffic or whatever, I'm just lugging it along in whatever gear I can, you know, I'm not paying that much attention. But sometimes I'll get bored and be like shifting gears or like, oh, can I try heel towing around this, you know, around this corner? Maybe I can. Maybe of I can't. Of course you can. And when you get it right, it's a lot of fun. It's yeah, kind of like exactly. when, your, when your parrot says exactly what you want it to say, you give it a treat. <laughs> Will you give yourself a treat when you do it right, you know? That's exactly true. Yeah. It's like you're training yourself to be to be better at it. And that's just a, a fun thing that you don't really get to do with an automatic car, and especially with a modern automatic car where they're so fast that in order to get to a place where you can feel pleased with yourself for doing something smart, you're going very fast. And if you do mess up, it's a real problem. Whereas with a manual, it's like you can play with it between first and second. You can play with it between second and third. You don't have to be going 90 plus miles an hour to have fun with a manual car. That's right. So this Vantage, that's their compact version. I've, I've always liked the Vantages the most because they are the smallest or the shortest wheelbase and the most interesting handling dynamics for me among the Astons. And of course, this one has the new uh, Mercedes-based engine. Yeah, that's right. It's a twin-turbo V8. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun. Like, it was just difficult enough that you could occasionally not get it right, uh-huh. but it also had enough modern helpers that you weren't going to ruin your life by getting it wrong. Precisely, or blow the clutch. What else? Anything else you've driven recently that you like? I really, I like new cars. I think they're amazing. I Again, talking about ways that we can make the world work for all kinds of people. I think that there are new cars that do a lot of great things and are also not using so much gas. But an old car to me is like a pet or a friend. You know, it's just really different experience to drive one. That's absolutely true. As far as the future is concerned, you know, you mentioned gas. Maybe it's not gas at all. What do you think? I'm not smart enough to answer or parse the information that's coming in. I don't know which bits are true and which are exaggerated and which have to do with who's making money off of what. But I think that the more alternatives there are for transportation, the better it is for everybody. But of course, I couldn't let Alana leave without asking her my favorite question. You know, I like to ask all our guests, you know, that kind of crystal ball question, uh, three cars. Three cars what? Well, three cars you would put in your garage. Oh. All right. Lamborghini Mira, because I think it is the prettiest car ever made. 
the Opal GT, which is already there. <laughs> and that's a, that's a great life lesson to be satisfied with what you have. <laughs> Probably the greatest philosophy and a, the best advice that anybody could take. And maybe, maybe a Hemi Challenger. That doesn't make you a bad person. And I think for you, it would be absolutely appropriate. It's not too far off from what's already there. I mean, really, I just need the Lamborghini. There you go. Well, let's see. You've got two out of three. (laughs) Easily done. Any new projects for 2020? I have been working on a book project. Oh, do tell. I am working with Don the Snake Prudhomme. Don the Snake, of course. Yeah, so that's great. Drag racing history and also just a very interesting human being, like a very interesting man who's done a lot of cool stuff outside of drag racing. And so I've learned a lot about his life. He's been very good to work with. And so I'm hoping to finish that at some point. <laughs> that's that's great. I certainly don't know him well. I had a chance to meet him with Carol Shelby at an event when he put his name on a more contemporary Shelby car. And, uh, yeah, he was friends with Shelby, and a lot of people don't know, but he raced a Ford-powered dragster for two years in 67 and 68. Okay. And he worked, uh, Shelby sponsored him one of those years. I'll be darned. So that's when the connection started. Yeah. Yeah, he's part of one of the patriarchs of drag racing and really a part of motorsport that doesn't probably get it its due because, I mean, high performance really started with drag racing. Yeah, and, you know, What I love about motorsports is that if you really start looking into the history, there's so much crossover, way more than you would ever expect. And so, again, talking about not being snobby, being snobby about any kind of motorsport just is showing how ignorant you are about motorsports. You're absolutely right. Like, for example... It's not it's not all F1 suites and uh, <laughs> yachts off of Monaco. No, and all of those things were connected, whether it was F... You know, I mean, back in the day, F1 drivers and NASCAR drivers could have been the same guy. You That's know, right. Dan Gurney drove everything. Bobby Allison and Donnie Allison were both IndyCar drivers as well as being NASCAR that's, drivers. That's yeah. right. And, like, Don Prudhomme was and still is good friends with Mario Andretti and once went for a ride around the Ferrari test track with Nicky Lauda. You know, like, they crossed over. And if they weren't too snobby to hang out with each other, then who are we to say that one is better than the other? Certainly certainly the fans should be able to appreciate achievements in all those different motorsports arenas. Yeah, and and the development is connected as well, you know, whether it's aero or engine development. That's right. Probably now more than ever. By all means, good luck on that Don the Snake project. It'll be great to read it when it comes out. Well, I mean, we'll have to just all meet up again, maybe bring Don in here. Let's do it. Ilan, I want to thank you for coming in today. It's been great to talk to you. And this is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. We'll see you next week. Thanks to automotive journalist Alana Shear for joining us on Cars That Matter. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars of the Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Our guest today was Alana Shear. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.